Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the TNSR podcast. Today, we're going to talk about uh, issues with anti-war and demilitarization and the social movement that goes along with it. Uh, just going to open up the podcast with the question here. In general, what do you guys feel the issue is with the military right now? Um, personally, I think one of the first major points is like it's extremely overfunded. If we just look at the budget itself is over $700 billion. Um, and in comparison to like the discretionary budget, which is what the president gets to choose, that's over 50% of our available funds. And uh, that's just one of the major points of it. Uh, anyone else got to add with that? So I think that currently uh, for me, the biggest issue with the military right now uh, is the environmental costs and the cultural costs behind the military. Uh, culturally, I think that uh, when the military goes into different countries like uh, like Afghanistan or like Iran, and they're there primarily for uh, like resource mining and mining for resources and planting big businesses like Exxon and places like Qatar, um, I think that that is just giving a military presence in other countries that... Um, we don't necessarily need to be in and that we're kind of fighting over for, for oil, for this resource. And um, uh, I think that that's just invading their sense of culture and they're not really here with their big presence. And I mean, aside from that, with the environmental costs, uh, if the US was a country on its own, they would rank number 55 in the largest emitter of CO2. So um, that, that, that's, that's my take on it. So while the environment is losing, uh, in large, a lot of these corporations are winning. Does anybody want to speak to that? Um, yeah, so, I mean, the corporations that kind of benefit the most usually are defense manufacturing companies, such as Lockheed Martin, uh, Raytheon, Boeing, or Northrop Grumman. They usually get a lot of uh, subsidies from the government to make these very dangerous weapons that have killed thousands of civilians. Um, what's been reported in Iraq is that 66,000 uh, civilians, Iraqi civilians have died. Uh, documented 13K Syrians have died. And it also leads to like refugee crisis, such as in Iraq, 6 million people have been displaced because of the war there. So many Americans are largely misunderstood in the way the military interacts with their day-to-day -day lives and with uh, just how it affects us as a country in general. There's multiple narratives at play here. Uh, would you guys want to speak to any of that? Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I guess I'll take this one. So I think that a lot of Americans, and especially those who are pro-military, kind of just argue that like demilitarization and like cutting funding for the military and bring the troops back, which are all things that are weakening the army, makes the US just look weak on a global stage. And it kind of spread the narrative that defunding the military is anti-patriotic because America is becoming less great than it was when the military had more money. And I think the danger of this sentiment is kind of just that it leads to a prioritization of saving face by funding the military and I feel like there are other areas that need the money more like 
education and childcare? So a place where a lot of Americans are mistaken is with the military's overall purpose and how it may benefit or not benefit them. And there's multiple narratives at play here that are playing out in the minds of many Americans. What do you guys think about that? So I think that one of the bigger narratives here is that people are uh, arguing that in order to be patriotic, you need to have full support for the military and that you should have like everything in with your support for the military and support the troops. And while that's true that you should support them, I think that, uh, that the fact that people are using that narrative just to kind of feel themselves, just to always, no matter what, support the military and everything that they do, I think that that's not really looking at the bigger picture. And uh, with people thinking that national security must be a priority, uh, if national security is a priority, that means that they're going to be prioritizing the funding going towards that and not things that are actually important, like our schooling and college tuition and our homeless issues. And uh, instead, they're focusing on building up arms constantly and advancing military technology. And uh, with that, like we're just kind of preparing for something that hasn't happened and we're just putting our money towards the issues that aren't as important right now. And aside from that, I don't think that war should be happening at all. So we should be putting all of our money towards the things that should be benefiting other people. And just to add to that, um, when we talk about funding, Bernie Sanders proposed a policy for college for all that would cost 70 billion universal child care by Warren, uh, by Elizabeth Warren. That would cost 70 billion. Universal pre-K is an estimated 26 billion. And all of this is extremely cheap when we consider that military budget again is over 700 billion. Yeah, and I think something that also just contributes to almost a culture in some parts of America of just prioritizing the military over other like necessary um, services in the United States is that a lot of people who are pro-military are kind of stuck in this viewing frame that the military is more important than these other services and that like you have to be pro-military. And I think this is kind of shown when like there are veterans that I know who have watched like the movie Full Metal Jacket, for example, and go out of it thinking that it's a pro-military movie because it features the military. It's almost like this mindset that like, the military has to be glorified and there's like almost no other option and like any other option would just be like almost treason against the country. So the military is seen multiple times in media and pop culture as being pretty hard to paint in a bad light. Many Americans, whenever they see it, think it's in support of it. So this deals with a lot of like the smoke and mirrors of the military itself and how it's presented to the people. So do you guys want to speak on what factors lie behind these smoke and mirrors of the military? Yeah. Um, so with like the smoke and mirrors of the military, I think that that smoke and mirrors that we're relating to is just kind of the, the stuff that the public doesn't necessarily completely think about or the general population doesn't always think about or what the military doesn't really want us focusing on and um, I think a good example of that is I have a I have a close friend who I've known for a long time and he works at a 
he's been at an internship at BAE Systems for I think three years now, and he does it like once every year for a season, like of like uh, five to six months, like intervals. And um, he knew that they were like a military defense company, but um, he wasn't really entirely aware of exactly what they were doing. And he just shared with me recently that uh, that BAE Systems they actually sold around. 15 billion pounds worth of arms to Saudis during the Yemen assault. And um, according to an article by, uh, from The Guardian by Don Sabah uh, from, from April 14, 2020, uh, that Saudi Arabia's Air Force, who were armed with these BAE fighter jets, they were accused of roughly 12,600 killings that have happened since the civil war started in Yemen in March of 2015. And after he found out about this, this was something that he was not aware about that BAE would support things like this uh, just in return for huge amounts of money. And he said that after he found out about this, he kind of delved a little bit deeper and he found out more about the company. And now he's questioning his loyalty to the company and what exactly is he working for and what are they doing? So this company that you talk about is, as you said, in cahoots with Saudi Arabia, which was a part of the oil price war between Russia and America, which many U.S. companies that dealt with oil uh, became a part of. And that kind of speaks to how the military has had its own interactions in the Middle East with oil. How do you guys feel on a pure personal feeling level about sending troops to places purely for the benefit of these major companies? Well, um, from a personal standpoint, I'm Afghan myself and my family is from Afghanistan. And um, I know that the, the people there, they themselves, they're, they're definitely not happy about the American troops being there. And uh, I don't know if they're necessarily being as helpful to the actual people of these countries as they are, not just Afghanistan, others as well, where America has a presence of military. And um, I don't think that it's very good for the culture there. And I don't think that the people uh, really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, I feel like it's just effectively putting a price on people's lives, where they're saying we're willing to sacrifice this many people if it gets us this much money, which is just... I don't think there's really any other way to feel about that than just thinking it's just terrible, just completely wrong. And a notable current event that's happening is uh, back in February, uh, Donald Trump initiated a peace deal with the Afghanistan government and the Taliban there, and it would essentially bring back 2,500 of our remaining troops from Afghanistan. Um, now that the Biden administration has taken office, they still don't know what to do with that agreement. So on May 1st, um, we would get the decision and, um, and we could see sort of this narrative power take place, especially with newsletters like the New York Times saying how it's not, we're not ready to bring back our troops and other newspapers kind of saying the same thing, pointing towards the direction that we should keep our troops there and kind of continue this long-standing war that we've already had. So talking about this shift from president to president, we can also look at how the demilitarization and anti-war movement 
has shifted from era to era. Do you guys want to dissect a little bit how these shifts took place and the distinctions and changes across the course of history within these individual movements that were all a part of the anti-war movement? Okay. So I think the anti-war movement has really just been present since the country's been at war, which it really always has. So I think though the reasons for these wars have varied a lot. The anti-war movement has really always just been characterized by this strong-held belief that whatever the country could stand to gain from being in a war just isn't worth the human and economic price the country left to pay to win that war and get what they want. And I think this is kind of where like the ebb and flow of the movement lies because when the general populace agrees with the country's reasons for war, the movement can die down. But when they oppose the country's reasons for war, the movement can gain support incredibly quickly. And I think the best example of that is with the 2003 invasion of Iraq, where in 2003, leading up to that Iraq invasion, 800 cities across the world all gathered. So I think in total it was 12 to 14 million people in protest of the U.S. entering Iraq. And this was before the U.S. had even started an invasion. This was them calling to stop the invasion just before it even happened. And they even got countries that are like under U.S. aid and dependent on America, like Mexico, Guam, Cameroon, Chile, and Pakistan to say no to endorsing the war. And uh, going off of what Timmy was saying about how uh, like the history of the anti-war movements, um, I think that... uh, since like the Vietnam War, uh, we've kind of like had some some similar types of protests where you see large groups of people, like huge groups of people standing up against the war and and truly saying and showing how they like believe very strongly against these wars. And I think that a good example of that is the 1967 March on the Pentagon, where uh, there was actually around 100,000 attendees at the Lincoln Memorial and all these people were in protest of the Vietnam War and it was uh, mainly uh, youth people but it was a wide variety of people it was uh, adults it was children it was uh, young teens and uh, I just think that a protest of 100,000 people during the Vietnam War I mean it's 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 really showing just how many Americans just during that time were, were against the war and I think that things things like the protests against the uh, Iraq invasion, um, I think that it really carries on over the eras. So you guys talk about the protests against the Iraq invasion. Many see these these protests could be seen in a light of sort of a preemptive strike from the anti-war movement against this invasion. We obviously see it still happened, but. The U.S. in many cases has been seen preemptively striking in its own way through the military. I'll be honest, I don't even know what preemptive strike means, bro. I was just like, damn, like, I'm going to hop in this. It's like you, you like strike before. It's like if someone, if you think someone's going to shoot you, you shot oh, them before okay. they could shoot you. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I want to, I don't know where I was going to go with that, though. Well, you could just make a new question. That's you know. Okay. So you guys mentioned the Iraq. 
protests, which were in protest to the Iraq invasion, we obviously see a massive amount of support across the globe before this invasion has even happened, as you guys mentioned. So we're not seeing this sort of involvement even across the globe, but even uh, natively in America, we don't see many people supporting the anti-war movement. So my question now is, how do you guys think this movement can regain support? Well, I, I think that in, in the past, there's been campaigns with slogans such as bring the troops home. And that was kind of widespread and it wanted people to have the troops come back home uh, just to be safe with their families and kind of understanding that they might not need to be there. And I think that today that's not really a huge focus anymore. And I think that what the focus should be shifted to is that people should understand that there needs to be a reduction in foreign troops in these countries that America has a military presence in. And I think that the other focus that goes right alongside with that is that the military does not really need as much funding as it is currently getting, and that we should be focusing on shifting that funding towards more important issues in America. And just to go off that, Gestata saw earlier when I was researching this is that in 2011, when the U.S. had 185,000 troops in the Middle East, the amount of money we were putting towards the war in the Middle East was like around $185 billion, which like measures out to about $1,000 per soldier we had in the Middle East. And now that we're bringing the troops home, the amount of money that we have or the amount of money we're putting towards the war in the Middle East is currently $5 million per soldier that we have deployed. So I think though those troops are being brought home, the issue that the money that's being spent isn't being decreased with the amount of troops we have out there is one that should just be focused on or just be given a bigger spotlight. Um, also to add to how we could demand change, I think it starts with um, education. And uh, if we kind of educate ourselves at the current conditions of what's happening in the Middle East or what's happening domestically with our funds, I think we'll get a better understanding of what's going on in terms of this military-driven economy. And uh, that every year around October 1st, our representatives vote on um, the discretionary bill that the president proposes and the uh, president proposes just how much money goes into each department. And uh, I think if by around October 1st, if we urge our politicians to vote down on proposed budgets that overfund the military, I think we'll have a better shot at kind of restoring this anti-war movement. Going off of what Ronald was saying about education, I think that what's important uh, is also for Americans to be educated on is how much some of these wars are being directed towards uh, the oil and uh, how people are fighting for oil and they're invading other countries for oil and it all revolves around oil and it supports the fossil fuel business. And I think that in supporting the fossil fuel business so largely, especially with the military supporting the fossil fuel business, we're really straying away from completely going green and trying to have an environmentally friendly society and move away from 
this idea that we need things like gas vehicles and that factories need to run off of gas and and uh I just I don't think that it's a sustainable resource especially in the direction that we're headed and with the military fighting over it um, and making its presence in other countries for oil I think that people need to be educated on that so that we can help change that and not make that their focus for these wars uh, another thing just to add to what Samir said and how it how this militarization kind of impacts us on a personal level um, there's two federal programs, the 1033 and the 1112 initiatives. Essentially what these initiatives do is uh, allows the Department of Defense, pretty much the military, to pretty much give any military equipment to local uh, law enforcement, like the police, free of charge. Um, and you know how that really affects us, and it kind of ties into uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is uh, there's always, there's been a constant plea to demilitarize the police and um, by kind of overfunding the military and they're making these very dangerous weapons, it eventually kind of trickles down back to us, to regular citizens, because law enforcement eventually gets their hands on some of these weapons. So playing the devil's advocate here and giving a little bit of a rebuttal, some people would argue that the military is in fact good for Americans because it gives many an opportunity for a job that otherwise they may not find the same paycheck and they don't need a degree for it. Sometimes the military will even pay for their schooling if they want to get a degree. So obviously this is somewhat beneficial for citizens However, do you guys see any downsides to this? Well, I think the problem with that viewpoint is that, like, yes, because we're putting so much money into the military, it can kind of be like a good alternative or just an alternative to college and like further education. And it's a guaranteed job and salary. But with all, if we just redirected some of the money we were putting into the military to other like resources, we could be increasing the minimum wage, which is also giving everyone more money and better job opportunities. And just, I feel like there are other ways that we could be spending the money that's going into the military that could get the same effect, but more effectively and without having to risk the lives of the citizens of the country. So I think that's an excellent point. And I think uh, leaving my spot as a moderator here for a second to, uh, refute my own rebuttal, I would say that a lot of this money that we see being spent for the military is in fact not towards these citizens and their salary, but instead towards these weapons of mass destruction that we are producing. So building off that, defunding the military, I think you could do that without directly coming for the paycheck or job opportunities that the citizens have access to. I would definitely agree with, with, with Noah's rebuttal to himself. And I think that there's definitely a way that we can still provide jobs to those in need uh, and just anyone who, who would like to be a part of the military without spending so much towards the military and putting so much money towards things like, like the, the F-35 program, which was basically when the military put 
a huge amount of money towards this this program for a new fighter jet that was supposed to be the top of the line, um, the F-35 fighter jet. And I think it was $35 billion that went towards that. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think that's right. About $35 million, billion dollars. And uh, I think that with that, in the end, the company Lockheed Martin, which was in partnership with the U.S. military to build this plane, it ended up being mostly a failure in the end. It had huge flaws and it was not passing its tests. And overall, it was unsafe for the pilots to fly. And I mean, think about it. That was $35 billion put towards this plane program. And in the end, it wasn't working. That's just, that's a complete waste of time and money. And yeah, I gave the people the jobs, but that time and money could have been spent towards something completely different. So obviously we're all on the same page here now. And hopefully many of our listeners have, at the very least, challenged their own opinion, if not already agreed with us. So the question now is, as individuals, how do we demand change now? Um, I think it really starts with making sure that we elect politicians that really work for us and really have a strong demilitarization agenda and also with the current representatives we already have, we have to make sure that they are indebted to us and vote on policies that demilitarize. I would definitely agree with Ronald. I think that it's important for us to stay educated on our current state senators and our current state's politicians. And I think just all states in general, we can have an influence as an individual and make sure that these people in positions of power are doing the right thing. And I think that that needs to be something that everyone in their communities is aware of is that they themselves, if they're educated, they can make a change. And that if everyone is thinking collectively and that um, if everyone just learns that the military does not necessarily need this much funding, I think that, uh, I think that we can make a change and that we can demand change. Yeah, just building off what Samir said, I think like we've seen in the past, like for example, those 2003 protests against the Iraq invasion, that when a bunch of people get together to protest a cause or protest something that's gonna happen, like real change can be made. And though the US still went into Iraq, like a lot of individual countries risked many benefits the US was giving them to say that that war was wrong. So we know that a coordinated protest can influence countries to choose the greater good over financial gain for themselves. So why can't we do that on a greater scale with the United States of America? So as Timmy mentioned, demanding change as a group rather than an individual is also a very powerful tool for the anti-war movement. Do you guys have some points of intervention that you can mention that can further demand the demilitarization and the defunding of the military itself. Yeah, so I think that one point of intervention can come at the, the point of production and the point of production could be these military defense companies themselves. And I think that those are companies such as Boeing, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and as mentioned, BAE Systems as well. And I think that 
an intervention idea could be strikes to stop the production of these drones and, and fighter jets. And I think that what uh, a lot of people aren't necessarily always aware of is that these companies have large scale contracts with the military and that they're funneling huge amounts of money into the production of this military technology. And a lot of the time, what people don't know is that these drones and fighter jets are bombing and killing innocent people. And sometimes these defense companies, they have locations in major cities and major communities. And I don't think that people are necessarily aware of that. Um, like I, I myself, I, I, I live in San Diego and I used to live in Rancho Bernardo. And in that area itself, it's like a small suburban community and Northrop Grumman has a huge location there. And that is one of the main locations that they do produce and design drones. And these aren't just surveillance drones, these are drones meant to bomb people and I don't think people are necessarily aware of that and I think that strikes towards these and people being aware of it in their communities um, I think that that could be a great point of intervention. Uh, and this kind of leads to the point of decision because even though our politicians are the one making these votes most of the time, our politicians are largely funded by corporations. So the point of decision is not necessarily the politician, but the corporations, the heads of corporations themselves. And uh, if we had targeted protests at their headquarters, it really filters out who really is pulling the strings when it comes to the military and our current politics with foreign affairs. So whether it be thousands of miles away or right in your backyard, the military is the largest funded program in our discretionary funding. I think it's important for each and every citizen to ponder how this money is spent, what this money is spent for, and who benefits from it. Thank you all for tuning in to the TNSR podcast. I'd like to thank all of our members who spoke today, Timmy Ellis, Samir Nafez, and Ronald Dang. This is Noah O'Clancy, and see you guys next time.